them to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And once again, we're looking a little bit closer at the second prayer that Paul prays in the book of Ephesians. And as I stated last week, this uh, prayer of Paul's is a very spiritual prayer because it doesn't contain any references to anything physical or material. The prayer that uh, Paul makes here is that these Christians would be strengthened in the spiritual man. And so it's not a prayer for physical and material things, but these people would open up the very deepest recesses of their hearts and they would be prepared for the work and the ministry of Christ. It was the attitude of Paul and all of the apostles, first and foremost in their lives, that God should be number one. God always has the priority. And so they never really worried about the material or the physical things because they thought that if a person was not in tune with God spiritually, if they weren't in the middle of God's will, then it doesn't make any difference what you do with the physical or the material. So they were more concerned uh, about where the spiritual man is. And they believed, as Jesus taught, that when the spiritual man is right, God will add all of the other things that you need. Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. And so I think that what Paul is doing here is building upon that teaching of Jesus. Because he had full confidence that if God granted them the petitions that he asked for in this prayer, that they would have all other things that they need and that they would be content with the things that God gave them. And if you remember, that's the lesson that Paul learned in his own life because he said that, I'm content in whatever state I am. So no matter where he was and no matter what God gave him, he was always happy where he was because he was in the center of God's will. And so when Paul writes this letter, this is the whole reason why we don't see him moaning and groaning and complaining all of the time. He's writing the letter from Rome. He's in prison. But he never has an attitude as he writes this, woe is me. Look at all the problems I have. Look at all the, uh, the things that are going wrong in my life. He never talks like that. That wasn't his concern. So he never focused on himself, but he was always focusing on the converts that he won. He wanted to make sure that they could attain the same type of spiritual life that he was living. And you know, that's one of the remarkable things about the book of Ephesians, because what we're reading here was not written to super saints. This is not written to extraordinary types of people that are unlike you and me tonight. No, he's writing to ordinary Christians, and he expected that they would be able to attain this higher spiritual life that he writes about and what he prays about. It's available to all of us. And so this is what this section of Ephesians is about. It's what the prayer is about. It's about how do you get from being an average Christian to being an above average Christian. C.H. Spurgeon, who is the, the great English Baptist preacher of the 19th century, said that there is as big a difference between a lost man and a saved man as there is between an average Christian and an above-average Christian or the normal Christian. And so if that's true, if there's that much of a difference, then I think all of us have a lot of ground to cover. And so this is what Paul is praying for in these scriptures. Well, we're going to read Paul's next petition. Last week, we talked about the, the spiritual man or the inner man. Now we're going to talk about the next petition of his prayer. So if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's word. We want to look at uh, chapter 3, verse number 14. We'll start there, but we're going to focus on verse number 17, the first part of verse 17. Verse 14 says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened 
with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. Lord, uh, we ask you to open our hearts to the prayer that Paul prays. May we see the petitions that he makes, and Lord, may we want to make these the same things that we would pray to you. I ask you, Lord, that you'd help us as we preach the message tonight, that we would understand better what it means to have a deeper faith in you. And Lord, I know that every Christian in this room tonight can attain this deeper faith. So we just ask you for your grace tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to focus on the first phrase of verse number 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. As I said last week, I preached on verse number 16 and what it means to be strengthened in the inner man. And tonight I want to preach on the subject, an ever-deepening faith. One of the things that Paul wrote in the book of Hebrews is that once we become Christians, we need to start progressing in our Christian lives. We're not to be satisfied merely with just being Christians or merely with the faith or the initial faith that brought us to the Lord. Instead, we're to be growing. We're to be anchored solidly in God's word. We'd be rooted and grounded in our faith. And the way for us to accomplish that is to do exactly what we're doing tonight. That's to open up the scriptures, begin to examine the word of God and pray that God will use what we read here to strengthen us and increase our faith in him. He wants us to be rooted deeply and, and grounded strongly in the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, this evening, I'd like to talk to you about three aspects of the deeper faith. And I want you to notice, first of all tonight, the reality of faith. The reality of faith. Now, all of us, I think, know the classic definition of faith. In Hebrews, Paul defines faith this way. He says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that's the only place in the Bible where we actually see the word faith defined. But the word faith there is not talking about saving faith. It's not talking about the faith that brings us to Christ. Rather, the scripture here is talking about, or this faith is defined as confidence. This is the faith by which you live. This is the confidence that you have that what God says is true, that what all the promises that God has made to you will come true. It's the confidence that you have to live your everyday life. So faith in this verse is not something unreal. It's not imaginary. There's reality to faith. And this real faith is actually the underpinning. It's the foundation of all the hope that we have. Now, we notice here in verse number 17 that Paul prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. One thing we understand as we read this is these people are already Christians. They already possess the faith that brought them to Christ. So what does Paul mean when he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith? Well, evidently, there has to be something more here. There has to be something that they don't already have. There's something else that they can possess. There's something that's even more real that will actually give them more confidence than they already have and something that's beyond the initial faith that they have in Christ. Now, I want to call your attention first to the reality of faith by noticing that faith is available to all. The faith that we're talking about here is available to all. And when I say all, I mean to every Christian because I'm not talking about unbelievers. Uh, You can't deepen a faith that you don't have. 
So we're not talking about unbelievers here. I believe probably that everybody in the room tonight is saved. Most of you I know, and you've made a profession of faith. But I want to remind each of you, if there's someone here tonight that you don't know Jesus Christ as the Savior, you have no confidence. There's no reason for you to have confidence. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said that your life, in your life, you're hanging over the pit of hell by nothing more than a spider's web. And you have no more ability to keep yourself out of hell than a rock, than a spider's web could stop a rock from falling. That's how he put it. So the only thing that keeps you from plunging headlong into hell, even at this very moment, is that God's hand is holding you up and God is the one who's granting you just one more breath to breathe. Without Christ, there is no hope. There is no confidence. But if you are a believer, then you possess faith that can go much deeper. You possess a faith that can go deeper than the normal spiritual level that most Christians live. The deeper faith is available to you. Now, let's think for just a moment here about the kind of faith that he's speaking of. As I say, he's not talking about saving faith because he's writing to people that are already saved. He's not talking about justifying faith because these are people that are already justified. But we do notice that he says here that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And so dwell must be the key word that we need to focus on. Well, there's a sense in which no one could be a Christian unless Christ dwells in your heart. I think we understand that. Now, there are many people who claim to be believers. They say that they know Christ, but Christ does not dwell in their hearts. They really don't know him. And so, consequently, Christ doesn't dwell in them. And you can't be saved unless Christ dwells in your heart. And so that must mean for us here that there's something more than meets the eye in this particular passage of Scripture. This is not Christ dwelling in the sense that a person has saving faith. If it were, then what Paul is doing here is, is praying for something and strenuously trying to achieve something that these Christians already possess. So we know that he's not doing that. If that were the case, if this is something they already have, and here he is telling them how they get to this deeper faith, but they already possess it, then it becomes a tautology. Does everybody understand the word tautology? A tautology means a useless repetition. There's no point in even saying it. And so we know that that's not the case here because Paul is praying in the Holy Spirit. And by the fact that the Bible records this and it's a Holy Spirit-guided prayer, it proves to us that this cannot be a useless thing that he's praying for. So whatever it is that Paul's praying for, it's something that they haven't yet achieved. It's available to the Ephesian Christians. It's available to all Christians. But some have not yet received it. So what does he mean here? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Well, once again, dwell is the operative word. And what this means is that Christ may come and settle down in your life. You know, there's a sense that you can dwell in a place and you're not comfortable with it. You can live somewhere and it doesn't feel like home. There's uneasiness there. But this is a word that means to come in and just settle down. It's like being comfortable enough that you're familiar with your surroundings and you just sit down and take your shoes off and put them up on the coffee table. It means to be a permanent resident than to be someone who's just a visitor. And what Paul is telling us here is this kind of faith, where Christ comes and dwells with you, is comfortable with you, and you are with him, this is available to all. But I want you to notice something else about it, that this faith is only realized by some. There are only some people who reach this. And so in other words, it's not all Christians who ever come to this place in their spiritual life. They're immature. 
They know Christ, but they don't really know him. They have a relationship with him, but they're not controlled by him. They like to talk about Christ. They may deal with Christianity, but Christ is not really in the center of their lives. And I think that you can see by by this why I say that faith is realized by some Christians and not by all. Because for most Christians, what Christ wants is just an afterthought. What God desires for us to do is not something that occupies our mind. We're not so much concerned about what God's will is for our life. And so people who don't have this kind of faith that we're speaking of uh, are not concerned about how Christians ought to function in this world. And folks, that's the whole reason why you have such a thing as Sunday Christians and not everyday Christians. This was brought out very convincingly by Christ. He was speaking to the Laodicean church in the book of Revelation chapter 3. And in verses 15 and 16, Jesus said, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I'm afraid there are a lot of Christians, perhaps most Christians, that fit in that category. They get to the place where they're just lackadaisical about God's work. They can take it or leave it. It really doesn't have much of an effect on them. And so consequently, if you're lucky enough, you might put it that way, if you're lucky enough to get that person to come on a Sunday morning to church, well, that's about all you're going to get. Because they're not going to do much more. They are not really going to do much for God. But I want you to notice what Jesus goes on to say in that same third chapter in Revelation. Because he says in verse number 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, I've told you before that that's one of the most misinterpreted scriptures in all of the Bible. This is not talking about lost people. It's not speaking about lost people opening up their heart and letting Jesus come in. Because you see, when Jesus wants to come into your heart, he has control of the door. When Jesus wants to come in, he comes in. He doesn't ask permission to come in. And that's because he does everything according to the good pleasure of his will. So this verse is not talking about lost people at all. He's writing this to the Laodicean church. And anybody who knows the context of it is very well aware that that's true. So what is he talking about? What do the Laodicean Christians need to do? Well, here's what they need to do. They need to open the door of the inner recesses of their heart so that Christ may come in and dwell. So that Christ could come in and be the controlling factor. Now, this is what... Uh, What Paul says here in these verses are the same thing that Jesus is saying. Jesus wants to come in and make a habitation. He wants to settle down. He wants to be the one who's in charge of this house. You see, if we just take the right interpretation of Scripture, every part of Scripture complements the other part, and we can begin to understand Scripture in the right way. Paul said right here in Ephesians chapter 2, if you go back up just a little bit from where we are, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. That was written to the church, but it's also applicable to individual Christians. And you know why? Because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And certainly what God desires for us is that the Holy Spirit may dwell in us, that Christ may dwell in us, and become our controlling influence. Let me give you just one more scripture that shows us how God's word harmonizes on this thought. Jesus said in John 14, verse 23, If a man love me... He will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. 
You know who Jesus is speaking to in that scripture? He's actually talking to the disciples. He was answering questions from the disciples, and this particular question came from Judas, but it had reference to all the apostles. Well, of course, the apostles knew Christ. And so Jesus is talking about a person who knows him in a salvational way, who is already saved, and one who keeps his commandments. And Jesus says that I will come in and I will make my abode with him. So they're already saved. So he has to be talking in the same sense that that Paul was talking about in Ephesians 3, verse 17. So the key here is that word dwell, that he might come in, he might settle down in your life, and that Jesus Christ might be the one who controls every thought and every deed. Now let me move on to another aspect of the deeper faith. Secondly, we can talk about the activity of faith. Because this kind of faith is not one that settles down on the inside and never works its way out to the outside. This is not some kind of faith that causes you to to, to go into some kind of monastic lifestyle where it's you and yours and you're concerned about yourself and nobody else and you don't care if the rest of the world goes to hell. That's not what this kind of faith is. There's activity in this kind of faith. So what kind of activity does this faith produce? Well, first it produces vision. And we can talk about faith's vision. And to understand the vision of faith, one of the best places we can go is right back to the book of Hebrews. I want you to turn in Hebrews, if you would, for just a moment and look at the 11th chapter. All of us recognize that Hebrews chapter 11 is called the roll, the roll call of the faithful. And in this particular chapter, we, we already found our definition of faith. That was in the first verse. But then the writer goes on here and he gives us examples of faith. But I want you to notice one particular scripture. Hebrews 11, verse number 13. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them. And underline the word seen them. Having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Well, that verse comes right after the writer has been talking about Abel. He's spoken about the faith of Enoch. He's spoken about Noah, about Abraham, about Sarah. And he says that all of them died in faith, and they were all persuaded of the promises of God. And he talks about they had not seen this come about yet. They hadn't actually physically seen it with their eyes, but they believed God's promise. They had a vision... And the vision of what God would do for them gave them their hope and their confidence. And their confidence is expressed in the word persuaded. They are persuaded of these things. Now, these Old Testament saints saw something that others around them didn't see. They saw something that the normal person, perhaps even a normal saved person, wouldn't see. Noah very definitely saw something that others didn't see. Noah was only one of eight people that got on the ark. And Noah went out there and built an ark out in the middle of a dry field. He saw something that somebody else didn't see. Enoch saw something that the others didn't see because the Bible says that this caused him to walk with God. And so close was his walk with God, the Bible tells us that God took him to heaven and Enoch never had to die. One of only two people in all of history who went to heaven without having to die, Enoch and Elijah. He saw something that the other people didn't see. Abraham saw something that the rest of his family didn't see. God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he said, Abraham, I want you to go to this country. I want you to go to this other place, and and I'm going to lead you there. 
Abraham had never seen it, not physically. He didn't know the way to get there. He didn't know where he was going. All that he knew is when he got there, he would know that he was there. That's all that Abraham knew about it. Now, in each of these cases, there was something that they saw without seeing. They saw it without actually seeing it. And that's faith vision. That's the thing that led them there. It's something that caused them, it gave them some activity to move out from their comfort level, to move from the zone where they are to go do something else. Now, the question for all of us is, does our faith cause us to see something? Does it cause us to see enough that we're going to move on for God? Folks, there is a difference in being merely a Christian and somebody who comes to be a hero of the faith. And that's what Spurgeon was talking about. The difference between the experience of a Christian who becomes a hero of the faith and that of an average Christian, he says, is as much as between a lost man and a saved man. So that's what faith vision does. Do you have that kind of vision? Let me tell you what this vision will do. This year, our school has faced a a real financial crisis because of enrollment. On the first day of the school year, we had a meeting, and our meeting was to discuss what are we going to do, how are we going to make it through with all the budget requirements that we have, how are we going to keep our school open. And what I learned is that all of our teachers in our school consider this school to be a ministry for them. And they would pretty much do just about anything that it takes to keep the school open. They made a commitment that they wanted to do that. What I also learned about this is that our our school administrator, Brother Dalton, insisted that he would take a huge pay cut in order to keep the school open. And do you know why he would do that? Because he has a vision. I mean, he has, this is real faith. And he said, we're not worried about this. Here was something that affects his wife, affects him, affects his whole family. But he said, God's going to take care of us. Folks, you know, there's a difference between the ordinary Christian who you may barely, if at all, squeeze a tithe out of them and somebody who's willing to do this. That's the difference in an ever-deepening faith. Now, the question is, do you have that kind of vision? Is Is there enough faith that'll start to affect your pocketbook. That's what Paul means when he says that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. The Ephesians hadn't yet attained it, but Paul was praying that they would get there, and he knew that they could. Well, what else do we see in faith's activity? Well, we also see faith's conviction. Another part of faith act, faith's activity is conviction. Again, in Hebrews, the word is persuaded. They were persuaded of God's promises. Well, what does persuasion do? Well, here's what persuasion does. When you, when you are convinced of what God can do, then you would do like Noah. Noah would look at his own capabilities and he would say, there is no way that I can build a boat that can hold all of those animals and all that food. There is no way that I can even gather all of those animals to get them all in the ark. There's no way that I can build a boat that size that nobody's even ever seen before and expect that this boat will float. And rain? What's rain, anyway? It was persuasion of the truth that caused Noah to be a shipbuilder instead of a farmer. So here's how it might be for you. You you might say, well, there's no way that I can be an influential Christian. There's no way that I can teach a Sunday school class 
There's no way that I can get up in front of a group that I could ever preach a sermon. There's no way that I could ever sing in the choir. There's no possible way I can make those kinds of commitments. And you may say, I'm busy. I have, I have a job. I have a business to run. I, I have things to do. I can't put myself on the line for God's work. But let me remind you of who Paul's talking to. These are people who are mostly slaves. They're people who are forced to work whatever hours their master requires of them. For the most part, they have no education. They aren't cultured people. And yet Paul's writing to them and he's telling them, this is all possible. He says, you can do this. They may not be educated. They may not be refined. But still they could do great things for God. Do you know that's what the Bible says is exactly what God uses? He takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, he says, and weak things of the world to confound the mighty. Are you persuaded enough of this? Do you have enough conviction to realize that this is possible for you? And that's what this is all about. It's not about Ephesian Christians 2,000 years ago. It's about you. It's about me. Do we have enough persuasion and conviction? That's what it takes to get to the ever-deepening faith. So here's what you have to have. You have to see the vision. You have to feel the conviction. And when you have those, friends, you will perform the action. Christians who sit idly by while somebody else does all the work do not have real vision. They don't have faith's vision. They don't have faith's conviction. Now let me go on to the final aspect of tonight of faith. Thirdly is the exclusivity of faith. Now, there's a whole lot to talk about on this subject. We could talk about other points besides reality and besides activity and exclusivity. But I want to talk about this particular area tonight. We'll have plenty of time to, to talk about other things in, in, our, in our next uh, lessons and after that. But I need to remind you of a statement that I made last week. I said, God is not going to fill something that's already full. And so in order for Christ to dwell in you in a deeper way... All of the things that are already filling you up have to go. But you have to be careful when you do this because when you've gotten rid of everything that there is to go, that needs to go, you know what's left and this is always left? Self. Self is still left. Now the temptation is that when we get rid of all these things in our life, the temptation for all of us is to look at ourselves and say, look what I did. Look how holy that I am. And you know that's a real problem in many of our churches. In many of our fundamental churches, people start judging others' lives by rules and regulations. And so they become smug and they become holier than that and thou. And we want to hold ourselves up to be everybody else's example. And they think, here we, I've reached this deeper faith that you're talking about. When really all they've done is shown their pride. They're proud of what they've accomplished. And they think they're living a deeper life, but they're still full of themselves. But the deeper faith that Paul is talking about here is not one that's full of self and Jesus. This is just being full of Jesus. And that's the exclusivity of faith. It's just being full of Jesus. And so if you're somebody who's proud of your holiness, then you're still full of yourself. So here's what happens. The exclusivity of faith comes in four stages. And tonight I want to call this the stages of reaching deeper faith. The stages of reaching deeper faith. Stage number one is all of self and none of Jesus. Now, that's where everybody begins. No matter who you are, this is where you begin. All of us are consumed with ourself. We're always looking after number one. When you come into the Christian life, 
This is where you are because that's where you've lived all of your life. This, this is what you've always been. And when you receive Christ by faith, then he comes to dwell in you. But he's not yet comfortable in that new home. It's what I was speaking about a moment ago. He hasn't settled down. He hasn't come in and taken his shoes off and completely taken control of your life. But when you begin to pray and you start to seek a deeper fulfillment, when you do what Jesus says to hunger and thirst after righteousness, then things start to improve in your life. And that brings you to stage number two. And when you get to stage number two, you have some of self and some of Jesus. You see, after you become a Christian, you get away from all of self and none of Jesus, and you get to the place of some of self and some of Jesus. Now, unfortunately, this is where a lot of Christian people stop. They got some of self and some of Jesus. Now, that's the Sunday morning Christians I was talking about a moment ago. They have their some of Jesus, and their some of Jesus is about an hour at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, and that's about all of Jesus they can take. And as soon as we say amen at the 11 o'clock service, they hit the doors over there. They head out on the parking lot. And from then on for the rest of the week, it's all about me, baby. It's all about me. And so they just have some of self and some of Jesus. So what do they do? They wander in the next Sunday and they get their fix. Like being shot up again with Jesus, you know, so they can make it through another week. This is exactly what I was talking about a few weeks ago. When I said that there are some Christians that are out here splashing and wading around in their Christianity, and the whole time there is a deep, deep river that's flowing right by. All they want to do is splash around. They're not going to get on over their heads with Jesus. But you see, even for those people, there's potential for them because with some prayer and with some determination and a whole lot of help from God, they can get to the next stage. The next stage, stage number three, is less of self and more of Jesus. So you see, now things begin to shift. The balance starts to swing towards Jesus, and and now they get a little bit more involved in stuff. Now, let me warn you, though, about this stage, because when you get in this stage, you better be aware of what comes next, because you may not be up for what comes next, and you may not want to get to the next stage. And you know why? Because when you get less of self and more of Jesus, it's just like skiing, You're right up to the top of the lift and you're standing on the peak and when you start down, it's downhill all the way. You start picking up speed. That's how it works in the Christian life. When you get less of self and more of Jesus, you start to find out this is pretty good stuff. This feels pretty good. I kind of like this. It starts to be fulfilling. And you start to overcome some of those nasty things that you have in your life that you just had difficulty getting over. You start working for Jesus, and now Jesus starts to consume you. Now, admittedly, there are some people who get to this stage, and they're on the downhill slope, and they try to stop on the downhill slope. And so they plant their poles firmly, and they stand there, and they're not going any further. They don't want to be drawn in too much. And that might be where you are tonight. Yes, I I love my church. I love working in my church in some ways, but still, I don't want to overcommit. And what you've done, you've stopped on the downhill slope. You planted your poles and you're leaning on the poles. Anybody here ever go skiing? Some of you, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you that haven't been, you still hopefully know what I'm talking about. When you get on that downhill slope, it's hard to stop when it's steep enough. But if a person is still praying, he's still hungering, he's still thirsting after righteousness, then friend, he's inevitably going to end up in stage number four. Stage number four is none of self 
and all of Jesus. So here's what happens. Not only do you have to clean up your lifestyle and start living a holy life, but you've also got to get rid of that pride. You've got to get rid of all this pride that many of our straight-laced Christians have. So not only does the evil in your life go out, but when you get to this place, self goes out with it. It all disappears. And so the exclusivity of faith is none of self and all of Jesus. Now, do you know what that is? It's exactly what Jesus says, and it harmonizes what I've been talking about tonight. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's how you get to an ever-deepening faith. Finally, you come to the place where you've denied yourself. And when you have denied yourself, all the evil has gone out with it. What's evil for a Christian? You ever thought about that? We know what evil that lost people do. But usually, you know, saved people aren't involved in many of the sins that lost people do. And you can go out here in Santa Rosa or or go down to San Francisco and some of the seamier sides of town. And you can pretty much expect what you're going to find lost people doing in those places. So most Christians aren't involved in those kinds of things. So what is evil for a Christian? Affections, lust, and gratification of self. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. So there's the key to an ever-deepening faith. It's none of self and all of Jesus. And that's what I want to ask. Is that where you are tonight? Have you fallen so deeply in love with Jesus that Jesus is all that matters to you? That's what Paul's praying for. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And so when you have been strengthened in the inner man, Christ will dwell in you. He'll take up his habitation with you and he'll settle down in your life. And he does it by faith. Friends, I just pray that God will help all of us to have none of self and all of thee. Let's pray. Well, we thank you so much for your word tonight. And we do want to reach a a spiritual life, a deeper faith in you. And we understand, Lord, through your word that just as Jesus says that we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. We can't be full of ourselves and be full of you. It just doesn't work that way. Lord, I just pray that you might speak to some heart tonight. Help us to rededicate ourselves to you. Help us that we might see that we need to get rid of all these things in our life that hinder our service to you. And then, Lord, if there might be just a person here who doesn't know you as Savior, would you open their heart tonight to the gospel? We just thank you, Lord, for all that you do and for this evening that we've had to spend together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.